Let us get into our word today. Father, we, um, we ask for the gift of faith. We sang about faith. We ask for the gift of faith as we turn to your word. Help us to look at your word with believing hearts. Ready to hear your word for us today that we may grow in our trust, our dependence, and our confidence in your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't been with us for a while, if this is your first time with us this Sunday, we are going through the Bible in a year um, with our sermons. And uh, we are in the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament, which recounts this book, about 400 years of very troubled times for the Israelites. And this is shortly after uh, they, they move into the promised land. God gives them the promised land. And it's a troubling time for them. And, and one of the primary causes of their trouble is that um, they, they mix their beliefs and their practices with the, uh, the, the many nations that are around them in, in the promised land. And, uh, and they develop through this, uh, you can think of it like this, a hodgepodge faith. They take a little here, take a little there, and they mix it with some of their faith practices as Israelites. And we're going to look at the story of an individual in the book of Judges who acquired a hodgepodge faith and had some, some really tragic consequences. So I want to start with, um, I want to start with a little bit about something that I read from Leslie Newbigin. Um, that name might not be familiar to you, but he was a British missionary that lived in the 1900s that, that worked over in India, so a very uh, multicultural setting, very different from... Uh, the culture that he grew up in in, in Britain. And, uh, and in India uh, and elsewhere, um, he noticed the tendency to, to mix in other beliefs with the Christian gospel. And in one of his books, he reported that while he was in India, when he was a younger missionary, once a week he would get together with some of the, the Hindu monks and they would talk about the gospel, and they would talk about all the teachings of, of Hinduism. And in, the, in the, the monastery, the Hindu monastery that they would meet at, uh, Newbegin noticed pretty early on there are these pictures on the walls of all of these great teachers throughout world history, great teachers of the different world religions. And there was a picture of, of Jesus included in, uh, in these photos. And every Christmas day, the Hindu monks would offer worship at the picture of Jesus, he reported. And, but of course, they would do that at the other pictures as well, different days of the year. And he, he wrote that after thinking about this for a while, just kind of this, this image of, okay, we're worshiping Jesus today. We're worshiping this other uh, teacher, you know, this other teacher throughout different days he started to realize that the danger for Christians to, in effect, be doing the same thing, including himself. And he wrote, um, instead, 
of taking the gospel for what the Bible says that it is. I've, I've mixed it with other ideas. And he said, I too had been guilty of, and this is the phrase he used, domesticating the gospel. So I want to talk about the gospel today and talk about how we can domesticate it. What does domesticating the gospel mean? It means, it means bringing in cultural values around us, bringing in human tendencies of our own and watering down the message of the gospel. And we see that in the story of Judges chapters 10 and 11 and how when one of the judges, and his name was Jephthah, even though Jesus of Nazareth had not been born yet, um, this gospel, this good news of God to the Israelites, he watered down that good news of God, and it had really devastating consequences. So, let's get into our story. We're going to start by looking at Judges 10. At this point, uh, the Israelites were being threatened by the Ammonites, this other nation, the nation of Ammon that was around them in, in the Promised Land. And um, as is, the Israelites adopted these different cultural values and practices of these different nations around them, God would discipline the Israelites by allowing them to be oppressed and terrorized by these other nations. And then the Israelites would eventually uh, humble themselves before the Lord and call out to God to save them, and he would rescue them from the oppression of the people around them. And, and this happens over and over in the book of Judges. And so this particular story is of when the Israelites were terrorized by the Ammonites. And once again, they turned to the Lord and they confessed their sins. But this time, God responds a little differently than how he had in the past responded to the Israelites and Judges. So I, and at first, you're going to read this, what God says, and it's going to seem kind of harsh. But then we see something very important about the good news of God. So I want to point this out. Look at chapter 10. Start reading in verse 11. So the Israelites humbled themselves before the Lord. They cried out um, for God to rescue them. Verse 11. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians... Amorites, when the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you. And when you cried out to me for help, God said, Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer serve, save you. Ooh, seems harsh. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But I want you to notice this. The Israelites cried out again to the Lord after the Lord spoke this to them. And they humbled themselves. Do with us whatever you think best. But please, rescue us now. The Israelites said to God. Now look at verse 16. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And God could bear Israel's misery no longer. And just think of the love of God that that verse 16 shows. Even after one failing of, after another of 
turning to God and then turning away from God over and over again. When they turn to God with sincere hearts, he is filled with compassion. And what God does is he sends them another judge, and his name is Jephthah. And let's pick up in chapter 11. I'm going to start reading with verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. And early on in chapter 11, we're given this, this picture of the religious upbringing of Jephthah. And it's not a very pretty picture, is it? One, his father was unfaithful to his wife by sleeping with a prostitute, and that prostitute was Jephthah's mother. Two, his brothers weren't winning any nice guy of the year awards, right? They, they drive Jephthah away. They say, you have no place in our family. Get out of here. And Jephthah fled from his brothers like maybe he was in danger. Um, three, uh, part of this kind of ugly picture of Jephthah's upbringing. Where was his dad in all of this? I mean, you would think his dad, what he needed was his dad to be able to come alongside him and say, son, son, your brothers don't know what they're talking about. Come home. Come with me. Everything's going to be okay. Dad wasn't doing that. And um, so so Jephthah uh, wasn't in this faith-forming family. He's away. And, and so the fourth part of this kind of ugly picture is the company that comes ar- alongside Jephthah while he's kind of run off. It's a, it's a group of scoundrels, the, the, the Bible says. The same word used of the, the scoundrels, the same word is used a few chapters earlier to describe men who go on this murderous rampage. So that's kind of the, the flavor of the word scoundrels, just really some bad dudes that Jephthah is with. Now let's look at verse 4. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, remember, Israelites were being terrorized by the Ammonites, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so that we can fight against the Ammonites. Now you can imagine in Jephthah's world, surrounded by the scoundrels, he had to learn pretty quickly how to fend for himself, how to fight, how to win, how to depend on himself to survive. So Jephthah, this, this man that had been driven away, now has proven himself as a mighty warrior. And the elders, the Israelites, come to Jephthah, come and, come and help us. Look at verse 7. Jephthah said to them, oh, yeah, now you come to me. Jephthah said, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to get me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in 
Gilead. Now, Jephthah wanted to make sure that they were were serious. (laughs) They were going to be true to their word and not just drive them off again. And so, in verse 9, Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. So notice that. Jephthah has this this kind of faithful component to, to his life. And the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? So he has this religious side, Jephthah does. Even though he's had this troubled past and surrounded by villains, um, he has some religious depth to him. He acknowledged God's presence and God's, the possibility of God giving the Ammonites over to him. And in verse 10, the elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And then he repeated all of the words before the Lord in Mitzpah. So maybe this this kind of this religious ceremony where he kind of confirmed his intent and and reached out to the Lord and had the elders of Israel do, do the same thing. So this may be a faithful action of, of Jephthah. So early on in chapter 11, he's, he's portrayed as a man of really troubled past, but also this man that has some degree of, of faith in the Lord about him. And then we're going to skip over verses 12 through 28, but what they describe is maybe another faithful move of Jephthah. He tries to reason with the king of, of Ammon to avoid this bloody battle. And he writes to them, he he tries to reason with them. But the king of Ammon will have nothing to do with it and just kind of ignores uh, Jephthah. They go back and forth a little bit, but in the end, the king of Ammon just disregards Jephthah and ignores him. And so Jephthah is going to go to battle with the Ammonites. And here is where we might think that everything will go well with Jephthah and the Israelites, with Jephthah appearing to be this kind of a devout man with plenty of military wherewithal to get the job done. And in verse 29, look at verse 29, so skipping over verses 12 through 28, look at verse 29. It begins by saying, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. So Jephthah is ready for battle. The Lord was with him. And you would expect everything is going to go great. Let's get back to a hodgepodge faith. The only problem is that Jephthah's experience of God is not really matched with a growing understanding of who God is. And, and Jephthah has this hodgepodge faith that he's put together through his years of depending on himself, living amongst this band of scoundrels, and also learning from these other cultures and, cultures and, and, and uh, nations around him that were, that were worshiping all these false gods. So look at verse 30. And Jephthah, as he's going out to... Advance against the Ammonites, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, if you do this, Lord, then, verse 31, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. 
And uh, if you look at the commentaries, they'll point out that the word whatever comes out of my door in verse 31, it's really, it's being rather generous to Jephthah. It is much better to understand that as Jephthah saying, whoever comes out of my door, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. Now, um, could Jephthah have been thinking, maybe my man's best friend, my dog will come out, meet me first? Possibly. A pigeon fly out of the door, meet him first? Maybe. But likely he had in mind that it would be a who coming out of that door. Whoever comes out, Lord, I'm sacrificing that person to you. What? What? That is a rash vow made because of a hodgepodge faith. So let's talk about hodgepodge belief. have a description of what I think hodgepodge belief is. Uh, For your hodgepodge belief mixes cultural influences and human tendencies without biblical grounding. There are ways that Christians throughout history, throughout the world, we have lived, we've asked the question, how do we live out our faith in, in our culture? And Christians have strived to do that in biblical ways. But you remove the biblical grounding and you start just adopting these practices and ideas, and we water down the gospel. Uh, Where did Jephthah get this idea to to make this rash vow, to sacrifice what came out of his door? Was it from biblical grounding? No, it wasn't, because if he had read his Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, he would have known that human sacrifice was off-limits, prohibited by God. He wasn't learning that from his... Hebrew scriptures. Um, He got it from cultural influences from the other nations around them that did practice human sacrifice. The other nations around Israel believed that they had to do whatever they could to please their gods, that that the, the favor and the blessing of the gods is something that could be earned through radical acts of, of religious devotion. If I, if I sacrifice, if I, if I sacrifice, you know, sometimes they would cut themselves. If I sacrifice my blood, or even if I sacrifice the blood of one of my family members, maybe that will be enough to secure the blessings and the favor of the gods that I worship. So even child sacrifices were acceptable to these other nations around the Israelites. It was a practice form of worship. You try to bargain with God, or you would bargain with the gods to get their favor. So Jephthah has this bad belief that I think we see in the story. I can bargain with God. And when you see that, I don't know how you react. I don't know if you're like, yeah, well, he was crazy. Or, wait, can't we bargain with God? Because people do it all the time. People try to make deals with God. You've heard it. If if you give me this job, God, I promise, I will start going to church. I will, I will, I will, you know, start living a good life. I'll be faithful to you. If if you get me in this opportunity, Lord, if you make it happen, I don't. However you do it, Lord, if you make this happen, 
God, I'm, I'm yours. Or even, God, if you give me this opportunity, I mean, if, if you do it, if, I have, if you make this happen, I have this opportunity, I promise I won't waste it. I won't let you down. I'll make the most of it. I'll do some good with it. Just please give me this opportunity. And at times, it seems a little harmless, does it not? But there is this human tendency as well that we use to come up with a hodgepodge faith. The human tendency is to see ourselves as the key to securing our own blessings. That's a human tendency. And we often, people think of this in two ways. One is the belief that by my own merit, I can secure the favor of God, or I can be right with God, or I can make God think he, I'm a pretty good person by my own merit. That's the first part of this human tendency. And the second part, I believe, is this. People can think, um, I rely on myself to secure my own blessing by this, by knowing what's, best, what's, what's good for me. And I know even better than God knows what is good for me, and so I'm going to pursue that, what I think is good in my life. So different ways of having this hodgepodge faith where we can adopt kind of cultural values that may not be biblical. We can rely on ourselves, human tendency. I can get this good for me. Maybe God's a secondary character in that. So how, how did Jephthah's story end? Many of you know the story. You don't like the story. It's, a, it's just kind of a, not a good story in the Bible. It's an important story. How did it end? Um, Jephthah was victorious over the Ammonites. And so skip down to verse 34 for the tragic detail. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? And she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Now, scholars don't agree entirely of what happens next, on, on what he meant. Uh, when, when Jephthah said he would offer whoever came out as a as a as a burnt offering, he said burnt offering. The only time that's used in the Bible is really talking about a burnt offering. It's not like a metaphor for something else in the Bible. Um, so did he really mean, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer, I'm going to kill, I'm going to offer as a burnt sacrifice, burnt offering to you, God, whatever living being comes out of my door? Very well could have meant that. Um, other evidence says that he may have meant that he was going to devote that person um, to the Lord's service for the rest of that person's life. Kind of like Hannah um, devoting Samuel, her son, to the Lord. And when Samuel was born shortly thereafter, he goes and lives with the priest um, in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the, the tabernacle, that was a tent that later became the temple or was replaced by the temple. At this time, the tabernacle wasn't really moved around from place to place anymore. It was located in Shiloh. And so maybe that that could have happened too, perhaps. 
And his daughter went to serve the Lord in Shiloh. But he, listen, um, either way, the tragedy is that Jephthah did not need to make that vow in the first place. See, the gospel, let's talk about the gospel. The gospel is about how we relate to God and God relates to us. And God says, you cannot relate to me through bargaining. It doesn't work like that. That's not the relationship I'm inviting you into, one where you think that you can bargain with me about stuff. God says, you cannot relate to me through earning. You can't relate to me thinking that you can impress me somehow. You cannot prove your worth to God by demonstrating your devotion. That does not demonstrate worth to God. So here's the lesson we learned from Jephthah about how to relate to God. One, have high confidence in God's covenantal love. Covenantal love. You cannot bargain for God's blessings. God loves us, but that love cannot be earned. And that's the idea of covenantal love. It's a love that cannot be earned. The way that God relates to us is best understood through covenantal love. And that means God promises to be faithful to us no matter what. You know, a lot of people think that the Old Testament shows this God of judgment. But actually, if you look really closely, the Old Testament shows a God of promise. And I want to show you this promise that God makes of this new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, what does this say? This is God's promise to us. What does it say? about how God chooses to relate to us. It says, one, God's love is intimate. It's an intimate love. Of course, Jesus, think about how Jesus uses this, the the language of new covenant. Jesus says, a new covenant I'm making with you. And he talks about the shedding of his own blood, his sacrifice, I will die for you, Jesus says. And he's thinking about his death on the cross. I love you so much, Jesus says. I'm willing to die for you. That's the gospel. And there's no good action of yours that can make Jesus love you anymore, and there's no bad action of yours that can make Jesus love you any less. That is the gospel of Jesus giving his life for us to secure our life with God and to show us the love of God. And when you receive Christ's gift of his love, when you really receive the the gift of Christ's love, when you say, thank you, Lord, for dying for me, Jeremiah 31 says something happens with God's law. He puts it on our hearts. It changes the way, listen, it changes the way we think about God's law or God's commands. I mean, think about how we can treat commands. Um, Sometimes we just flat out ignore them. Like you go to a park and there's a park sign listed are some 
some rules, the park rules or the park commands. Well, who put those rules up there? I don't know, the park squad? Well, who's the park squad? People? Do I need to listen to those people putting the park rules up there? Nah, they're just people, impersonal. Listen to that. That's, don't you see that? God's commands are not like that, are they? God says, when you receive my love, I write my commands on your heart. It changes you from the inside out. It's very personal. It's very intimate, this relationship of love that God is calling us into. My Holy Spirit will whisper my words to your heart. So God's love is intimate, and God's love is assured. You don't have to worry if you're doing enough to earn my love. God's saying, I won't promise my love and then pull it back. You don't need to, and indeed you cannot earn my love or bargain for my love. Why? Because Jeremiah 31, God promises in that. God promises, you are my people, I am your God. You can count on that. My love is assured. Why? God says, because I'm your God. And you are my people. Let me show you just a sign of this crazy, assured love of God. So Jephthah, he's pretty reckless here, right? Uh, You would think that God would be angry and disappointed in Jephthah. Uh, So near the end of the Bible, you look at the book of Hebrews, and chapter 11 of Hebrews, it, it's often described as the, the, the hall of faith where the writer of Hebrews lists all these names from the Old Testament, just figureheads of faith, Abraham and Moses, King David, and alongside all of these names of faith, the writer of Hebrews says, and Jephthah too. <laughs> and Jephthah too. As God looked at Jephthah, he didn't see some mess-up who had all this horrible theology. Ah, He saw this man that he loved and said, you are my people, you are my people. He saw his longing for God, even with all of its errors, and God received it as faith. That's grace. All right. So the next lesson, shorter lesson, and we learn from this is to have high commitment to God's word. And by that, I at least mean this. I mean, we read our Bibles and we believe what is written. God's word reveals to us who God is. God says, I will write those words on your heart so that they will not be like the the. Playground rules that you so willingly ignore. Use that in a very impersonal way, by the way. You might not ignore those rules. I might ignore those rules, but you might follow those rules altogether. God says, I will write my words on your heart so that they really shape you. And when we read God's word, we will depend more and more on God's love. When we fail to read God's word, 
we will depend more and more on ourselves. And we will water down the gospel with some hodgepodge belief that we can bargain some goodness out of God through the promise of our obedience. So, my friends, believe in the gospel. And the gospel does not... The gospel is that God does not require sacrifice from us from us in order to earn his love. The gospel is that God has already made a sacrifice to us to purchase our lives, to demonstrate his love, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so that we will be assured that we are always, always loved by God. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we think that we have to do the heavy lifting of our life in in securing all of our goodness and blessings. Um, Forgive us. Forgive us when we fail to believe that you are our good Heavenly Father and that you take delight in, in giving your kingdom of love and joy and peace to your children. And now we pray that you would lead us in this new life, this new covenant that you offer through Christ, your Son. If there's anyone who hasn't received the love of Christ and said yes, Christ, to your love and to your sacrifice, know that you can do that now. You can, with a sincere heart, say, God, I want all of you And I want to give my life to you and receive your ways and have you write your words on my heart. And you can do that right now. And God will reveal his promises to you that he will always love you and never leave you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.